Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This is the Tudor's Dynasty Podcast. And now, Rebecca Larson. Welcome to the show. I'm Rebecca Larson, host of the Tudor's Dynasty Podcast. And today, I am so very excited to share with you that my guest is the extremely talented Susanna Lipscomb. On this episode, Susanna and I chat about Tudor women, a bit about Tudor queens, a little about Anne Askew, we chat about witchcraft, and then we wrap it up with Henry VIII. You don't want to miss a minute of it. But before we get started, I'd like to thank my newest patrons, Connie P., Adrian, Cass, and Christina R. Thank you so much for your support. And thanks as well to all of you who are existing patrons. If you'd like to become a patron, you can do so by going to Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, dot com slash tutors dynasty and then just click become a patron right now patrons receive early access lessons on my tutor course as well as being eligible to win my monthly patron gift giveaways this month i'm giving away two books the first one is young and damned and fair by gareth russell and the other one is corrado by adrian dillard one is about katherine howard and the other one is about katherine carey you really can't go wrong. In addition, since it is the anniversary month of Anne Boleyn's execution, I also have a handmade replica of Anne Boleyn's famous bee pearl necklace as part of the gift. This necklace is absolutely stunning, and it was offered by Sonia at the Falcon's Nest. So, don't forget, if you would like to become a patron to have the opportunity to get one of these amazing prizes, you can do so by going to Patreon. If you enjoyed the Tudor's Dynasty podcast, please subscribe or follow wherever you listen to my episodes. Also, if you'd feel so inclined to do so, please leave a review there as well. I absolutely love it when I get reviews and love to hear from you. If you'd like to reach out to me to chat about one of the subjects of my show or just to say hi, you can do so on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Professor Susanna Lipscomb is an award-winning historian, author, and broadcaster. She is Professor of History at the University of Roehampton, a Fellow of the Royal Historical Society, and a columnist for History Today. Her list of accomplishments are quite long, and she has written several books on the Tudor period, so please check them out as they are all quite lovely. Susanna is also a well-established television presenter, having presented 18 history documentary series on the BBC, ITV, Channel 5, and other channels. Susanna, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. You are likely one of the most recognizable faces when it comes to Tudor history. Now, we all have our 
Tudor origin story. What ignited your love for the Tudors? So it's a good question. It's uh, and has multiple answers. I mean, I grew up just down the road from where Nonsuch Palace used to be and not far from Hampton Court Palace. So those sorts of things filled my childhood. And I'm sure that is partly responsible. And then I had a really wonderful tutor at university. Um, so when it came to the sort of serious business of studying it, Susan Brigden, who has written about Wyatt and all, Thomas Wyatt and all sorts of wonderful uh, other uh, books and articles. Um, and so she really inspired me. And then when I made the real change, so I started working on the 16th century, but I made the real change actually when I got a job at Hampton Court. Um, so I'd been working on 16th century France and then was pulled back to Henry VIII's court, and I'm very glad I was. <laughs> it's such a fascinating time in history, and one of the things I'd like to discuss with you today is the lives of Tudor women and, of course, Henry VIII. But let's begin with the most popular of all Tudor questions, shall we? Who, yep. is, who is your favorite of Henry's six wives? I'm writing about the moment, and so it sort of changes by the day. Um, my standard answer would be Catherine Parr, I think, because I find her, you know, underestimated in historians or, or in history's, uh, you know, judgment. She was very intelligent and much more beautiful than we remembered. She was much more lively and a patron of the arts and a great mother figure to um, the you know, the young princesses, or not that that was their title at the time, but then Mary and Elizabeth, um, and of, to Edward. And so I, I think she's sort of underestimated. But, you know, frankly, once I spend time with nearly every one of them, perhaps except Jane Seymour, I come away thinking that she's my fam- favourite one. <laughs> what is it about Jane Seymour that it seems that is the the consensus that everybody kind of seems to look over her? I mean, it's partly a matter of evidence. We have so little evidence of her character. So there are just a couple of instances where she says something a little challenging or she sort of acts in some way that suggests that there's something substantial to her. Um, Most of the time, you know, she's just quite a, a sort of a bland figure and it's hard to really get at her character and that's one of the problems quite often I mean for most women who's ever lived are are the Jane Seymour's of history because not because they weren't um, fascinating people in their own right but because the lack of evidence means that we can't get to know them. I definitely want to touch base on Jane Seymour a little bit later here but every show uh, I've been studying Thomas Seymour for about four years now. And every show, I find a way to bring him into the conversation. And you mentioned Catherine Parr. Uh (laughs) So obviously, those two are linked. Do you think just from the evidence that remains that their match was a was a love match? It certainly was on Catherine's side. Um, we know from the letter that you'll be familiar with of her writing to him, um, saying that she had wanted to marry him um, fully. My mind was bent when I was last at liberty, you know, to, to marry him before she married Henry. Um, and so it's harder to know what was in his mind. Um, obviously, in terms of the uh, terms of their marriage, we. Ha- there seems that he is behaving in an untoward fashion towards the Princess Elizabeth and to what extent that constitutes child abuse or an attempt to woo her or who know or just or is it just horseplay who knows but I think that Catherine certainly was hurt by it um so yeah it's hard to say we've got love on one side do we have it on both I can't I don't know 
Speaking of tutor queens, can you explain to the listeners what were the duties of a tutor queen maybe versus those of a commoner's wife? So at the time, somebody, a woman, um, most women were involved in the household work. Um, So we hear about, um, you know, the jobs of men, but actually really women were doing half the work in any particular household as well as raising children um, because of course there was no uh, reliable contraception and so children are born you know eight to ten twelve pregnancies in a marriage is very common Um, and that's that keeps you pretty busy I'd imagine Um, so uh, although quite a lot of women even those who are noble or royal would send their children out to be wet nurse when they were very young but by comparison, a, qu- a queen obviously needed to do some of that. She needed to produce heirs. Um, but she also had a role in, uh, uh, you know, in supporting the king. Um, and she's a queen consort I'm talking about, of course. Um, and, uh, you know, being being the kind of the face uh, to entertain in terms of diplomatic occasions, whether it's, um, you know, Claude, for, uh, the wife of Francis I being the present, and, as well as Catherine of Aragon at the Field of Cloth of Gold, or entertaining ambassadors who'd come from another country, and also being at the kind of centre of the, the courtly love world of the court. So being somebody who created that this atmosphere of um playfulness and uh, witty repartee so uh, the, you know a queen had and a, a sort of a lot of responsibilities above all if you were henry VIII's wife is to keep him happy <laughs> most definitely one of the things um that both um catherine of aragon and catherine parr had in common was that in henry's absence they were made regent that's right Um, Other than that, did the daily roles of the queen consort change at all from Catherine of Aragon's reign to Catherine Parr's reign? Do we know? It's really interesting. So, I mean, I think in in, probably not structurally or formally, I think that the Catherine of Aragon uh, was on the whole granted more responsibility than many of the wives who came after her and you know, talking of Jane Seymour earlier, uh, when she does start to meddle in um, affairs of state, that's when Henry tells her to sort of butt out, and it's been partly as a res- result of what has happened since Catherine. Um, uh, so it is unusual um, that Catherine Parr is then granted this regency, and it's mainly about the king going to war, of course. Uh, so I think it really rests on the character of the queens and also how long they reign. I mean, Part of Jane Seymour obviously is queen for a short time, Anne of Cleves for even shorter, Catherine Howard similarly. So, you know, Henry takes time to trust them, I suppose, with greater affairs. Perhaps that's true. So like her fourth husband's sister, Catherine Parr, died from purple fever. Can right. we just, let's discuss the birth of Prince Edward to Jane Seymour. What made that particular birth unusual compared to the previous queen's birth? Well, the it was a very long arduous labor so um it it lasts um i mean just a horrendous amount of time um uh and we understand as you say that as a result of that birth um jane dies of childbirth fever puerperal fever which is um which is basically caused by a lack of hygiene um 
So this might be as a result of the fact that the king's physicians were there to attend her. Um, Previous births probably were attended only by uh, female midwives, and that was the sort of common thing in in the Tudor and Stuart period, that the birth space, the birthing room, was a female-only environment. Um, Maybe that, you know, and and frankly, medical men had nothing on midwives when it came to birth um, at the time. So perhaps that's what's at the heart of it, but... Either way, um, it it was unfortunately terribly common for a woman to die in childbirth, and Jane is the first of the Tudor queens to die in that way. Why do you think Henry had his physicians there during Edward's birth? I, I just want to clarify, it's the first of Henry VIII's Tudor queens to die in that way. Um, I mean, the birth of a son was considered so important. So uh, I should imagine that it was there to try and ensure the, the, the prince's safety. And ultimately, it could have cost his queen her life. Yes, but, they, you know, this is hindsight. Um, no one at the time would have had any idea. I mean, bacteria, you know, obviously wasn't discovered until, as, a, as a sort of as a causation of disease wasn't discovered to Louis Pasteur, so we're not till the end of the 19th century. So there's, um, whilst we can say that, there's no one, no one at the time would have possibly suggested such a thing. So in comparison, what was childbirth like then for the lower classes? I mean, it's, it's pretty bloody, for, or, or, you know, for everybody, really. Um, the, the, it's, as I say, most of the time, childbirth happened in a female-only environment. Women who were pregnant in the last six weeks or so of pregnancy would go into their confinement, which means that they would go into um, a darkened room, which was muffled. Um, they would try and keep out foul smells, um, uh, eat fresh air as well, though. Um, anything that could uh, disturb the baby. Um, it was thought, you know, you didn't want to see a frog or a cat if you were heavily pregnant at that point, or the or the child might look like that. There were all sorts of superstitions about um, the, the birth. And it was a, an occasion where you'd be attended by women. Um, and, you know, I mean, frankly, childbirth is childbirth. Might, you know, if you have a natural childbirth today, um, you're pretty much... Uh, recreating what happened in the Tudor period. They used birthing stools in the same way as many women do today. They wouldn't have been pinned down on a bed and they wouldn't have had epidurals. um, And the risk was much, much greater because they didn't have modern medicine to attend to them. But, you know, um, there's, there's, uh, so the risk was greater, but the actual experience, I think for many would have been very similar to today. That's one of the things that I, uh, when I think about it, I cringe a little because I was fortunate enough, of course, to have modern medicine and I had an epidural. Um, when I had my daughter, and I cannot imagine doing it without. <laughs> yeah, we we live in a very medically speaking, we are very blessed. In the age of penicillin and anesthesia, we are we can't complain, even if we are living in a time of uh, viruses. Yes, definitely. I want to talk a little bit about women's rights in Tudor England. I think we're we're all familiar already that they really didn't have any. But what were some of the things that could be done to them if they say, you know, quote unquote, misbehaved, so to speak? So women had no uh, public uh, power in many ways. They had no could they take no positions in the church or in law, um, not officially in medicine though unofficially they did. Uh, they had no positions in the church. They couldn't go to university. Um, so there's, you know, they're, they're not represented in any of the major uh, 
um, sort of professions, women's power tended to be achieved in um, in the much more human way, in the interrelationships between people um, and through marriage quite often. Um, I think one thing is someone like Bess of Hardwick. Um, so, but of course, marriage brought its own um, difficulties. Um, in theory, if um, in theory, uh, what we would consider to be domestic violence, uh, uh, so disciplining of one's wife was permitted under law. Um, and, you know, that was um, something that was not to be done excessively, it was to be done soberly, um, it was to be done for, for good cause. But um, in practice, of course, those things are hard to judge. It makes you really feel for the women back then. You, it- and reminds us, you know, obviously we're still to this day not 100% equal to our male counterparts, but we still have it so much better than what they had back then. Well, yes, I mean, I, I'm afraid to say there are a huge number of women in the world who are in relationships where things aren't much different, I, I should imagine. But um, at least it's uh, not condoned wonder law. Exactly. I had watched a program that you did once, and I think it was called mm, Dangers of the Tudor Home or something like that. Yeah, in this country, it was called Hidden Killers of the Tudor Home, uh, but it may have cha- it oh. may have mutated elsewhere. Who knows? Nope, you're right. That was that was definitely the name of it. For for those who haven't watched, can you tell the listeners some of the ways that Tudor women could have died from, say, things in their home or tax tasks they may have performed? Well, let me give you one example. So um, uh, the ordinary Tudor housewife uh, obviously had to keep clothes clean um, and at least um, the bottom layer of their clothes. So uh, at the time, uh, people wore a linen uh, smock or shift under their clothes. And that was the bit that got washed, um, not really the body and not necessarily the richer layers on top. But to to wash such clothing they didn't have running water, obviously, in their houses, so they would need to go to um, a local river or lake um, or pond. Um, uh, you couldn't really do it at the well because you didn't want to pollute drinking water, though drinking water really wasn't um, one's first choice because even that was considered dangerous. So, um, the, and this sort of produced all sorts of dangers because uh, if looking at coroner's reports of accidental deaths, um, a vast number of them, some 40% or so in the Tudor period um, from the records that have been studied, seem to come from accidental drowning. And when one looks at the clothing that was worn in the Tudor period, which, which was just you know increasingly a much colder period than, than the one we live in, um, it was heavy woolen um, fabrics that get very waterlogged and could pull you down into the water very easily. Um, so accidental drowning and when you're washing the clothes, that's not something we have to think about as we throw the stuff into the washing machine. No, definitely not. We are very fortunate when it comes to that. One of the other things that I wanted to discuss with you, um, we're coming up on the anniversary here in a couple of months of her um, execution. Anne ask you, so prior to her, women were not allowed to be tortured. Is that correct? Uh, and indeed, when Anne was uh, Anne Askew was tortured, it was illegal as well. What contemporary evidence is there for how brutal her torture was? So Anne herself um, uh, dictated because she would have been 
judging by the fact that she had to be carried to Smithfield in a chair. She would have been too broken, probably, to write it down herself. But she dictated um, details of her examinations on two occasions, which were then um, smuggled out of the tower. Um, and the reformer, John Bale, um, produced them as books. They came out quite soon after Anne's death. Um, so we have her own accounts of what happened. Um, and then uh, we have later spins on them by people like John Fox. So we are told that Anne Askew, who was um, a radical Protestant, so she was what was called a sacramentarian. She believed that the bread and the wine in the Eucharist didn't literally become Christ's body and blood, but actually remained bread and wine and were symbols of Christ's body and blood, which was heresy in Henry VIII's England. Um, and she had come to the attention of the authorities because she had stood in the cathedral at Lincoln reading the Bible out loud. Um, we, we think because in 1543, under the Act of Advancement of True Religion, it was forbidden for women to do that. Um, and even gentlewomen, noble women, were only allowed to read it quietly. So she was quite radical. And we know that um, that the lieutenant of the tower was charged with racking her. And as, I, as you allude to, this was illegal. Um, it was also highly irregular to do so in a case of heresy and to do so when that person was already convicted. Um, and when he did not want to proceed further, two of the men of, um, you know, the king's uh, Privy Chamber, his closest um, men around him, Thomas Risley and Sir Richard Rich, um, according to Fox, said needs must torment her themselves. And so um, they racked her with their own hands. And the, the only explanation for this is that they were trying to get from her some sort of confession of her confederacy with Catherine Parr and the women around Catherine Parr to implicate Parr in um, heresy as well. How would Anne's execution have been received by the public at that time? It's a good question. It's quite hard to know uh, because you know we have so we have an account of a witness who says that he was there at the time she was executed. So she was later burnt along with three men who were also accused of heresy in Smithfield. So. Um, we have an, uh, somebody there who says that he, you know, objected to what was happening. Um, but there's a certain sense in which one might regard his testimony as being, um, again, something said with hindsight to make himself look a bit better to the to the person, to people he's writing for. <laughs> and it's hard to know what the, was in the minds of the crowds. Um, if we go fast forward to Mary's reign, it seems that whilst some uh, burnings were badly received if people were burnt in the towns that they came from and if they were highly respectable um, and it seemed wrong. But there also was a certain uh, ferocious um, uh, desire to see people burned. And if the people were unknown to those watching, then there was an enthusiasm towards such things. So it's really hard to say. On the topic of burnings... I never thought I would say that phrase, but <laughs> let's discuss witchcraft a bit, because in the reign of James I, we hear a lot about charges of witchcraft. Why is it that we don't really hear about it as much with the Tudors? 
Well, first of all, on the burning point, so in Scotland, um, which is uh, suspected accused witches were burnt, um, in England they weren't, um, just as in New England later in the 17th century, in England witches were hanged. And that's about a difference of um, their perceived crime. So whether they're seen as heretics or whether they're seen as um, committing a crime in of uh, murder. Um, and so the interestingly, the... It is in the Tudor period that witchcraft became a crime. And that's the crucial shift that happens in the 16th century. Um, that's something that has gone from um, being perceived as, you know, um, uh, folklore or as uh, a threat against the church now becomes a crime under law. So in 1542, witchcraft became a capital crime. And in 1563, that is um, again the case. And then in 1604, um, the act is further um, reinvigorated so that you know, even practicing black magic can be a capital crime. Um, but the question of why we don't see it sooner, I mean, it's almost impossible to answer because the witchcraft trials come about from a complicated series of factors. Um, the credulity of the elite, neighborhood accusations, a changing socioeconomic environment, the consequences of the Reformation, um, you know, the use of torture in, the, in continental Europe is quite important and it's also important during the civil wars of the 17th century. So, to, you know, it's, it's like the curious case of the dog in the nighttime. Um, it's almost impossible to identify what it is that is missing. Um, uh, you know, why does the dog not bark? Why are there not witchcraft trials? You know, it, how, to, how to say why something doesn't happen is almost harder to say than why it does. Uh, to wrap up maybe our discussion on Tudor women, I'm curious, were there any technological advancements maybe in the Tudor period which improved women's lives? Well, I mean, depends on one's definition of improved. Let me see. So, I mean, obviously, uh, things like the printing press um, meant that uh, over time, um, Women could have access to information just in the same way as men could, but that could also include things like um, once they started to include anatomies um, and um, in, uh, recipe books, so instruction books about, about not just for food, but for creating um, uh, remedies to heal. That sort of thing could be passed amongst those who could read or as in the same way as you don't need to be able to drive a car today you just need to know someone who can you know you could have it read to you so that sort of thing could be considered an improvement um but in terms of thinking about uh you know advancements in agriculture or um you know technological advancements in that way there's no real major improvements in this period that i can think of in fact most things are tending uh to the ill for women, um, the, the enclosure of common lands, for example, reduces access to um, a, a space of land in which to graze your cow or to forage for berries and firewood. Um, so um, I can't really think off the top of my head of anything that massively improves women's lives. But if anyone has any ideas, I'd be delighted to hear them. Let's switch gears a little bit to my favorite of the Tudor monarchs, Henry VIII. Now, fans of the Tudor era really seem to only really want to concentrate heavily, maybe like on the last 15 years or so of his almost 38-year reign. What was Henry like in each decade of his reign, or how did he change? 
So uh, Henry was very um, good looking uh, in his youth. He came to the throne just about to turn 18. And he was known for his good looks, for his accomplishments, whether it was speaking a number of languages, playing musical instruments on in sports, a capital horseman, a fine jouster, we're told, surpassing all the archers of his guard at archery. Um, and in terms of his character, he was thought to be um, a beneficent and generous and, um, you know, a, a man of enthusiasms and fun, frankly. Um, but I wrote a book... Um, called 1536 in which I looked at that year because I felt that that was significant in terms of understanding why Henry changed into the king that we're more familiar with that caricature of a ruthless um, obese uh, cruel monarch and there is much about that caricature that is accurate Um, and Henry had to get there and um there are a number of events that happened in 1536, which, to my mind, add up to constitute the necessary emotional and physical blows to change someone's temperament that dramatically. What is your opinion on how instrumental Henry was in conducting his own international policy? It depends at what point of time you're, you're looking at. So um, for much of the reign, the work is done by others. Um so Thomas Wolsey, obviously, and Thomas Cromwell. Uh, Henry has an idea of himself that rivals Francis I or Charles V, and he has an influence on policy, um, you know, but he doesn't always get his way. He wants to go to war, for example, in the 1520s, and, you know, it's just impossible to get money from Parliament. Uh, his achievements in the 15-teens in France are actually mocked in Parliament by Thomas Cromwell as the capture of Tournay and Temeran as being ungracious dog holes. And the money, the sort of grant um, that's going to be achieved is not forthcoming. And so he can't go to war then. So he doesn't have get everything he wants. Um, and there's certainly an extent to which people like Cromwell are trying to manoeuvre things in favour of the direction that they think is best. So after Henry is declared um, a heretic, so there's a ball that's published by the Pope Paul III um, at, that de- at the end of 1538 that declares that Henry VIII is a heretic and an infidel is excommunicated from the church and anyone can invade. And it's no surprise that knowing that that's going to happen in the run-up to that, um, uh, Henry's chief minister is trying to negotiate an alliance and it becomes a marriage with um, the court of uh, Julius Clevesburg, the Anne of Cleves as we know her. And that's in order to try and protect um, Henry um, if Francis I and Charles V decide to act on what the Pope has enacted. And the fact is that Charles and Francis have just become best buddies that summer as well. So it looks like they might turn on Henry. Um, you know, that's the threat at least. So we certainly see that other people are acting on his behalf and for him and doing much of the work, but Henry has a, an opinion on these things and certainly makes that known. Do you have any idea of maybe what were Henry's biggest fears? Yeah, his I think his biggest fear was a failure of the succession. In the, his will, he talks about the fact that his chief 
um, labor in, in the world had been to secure the succession. And it seems to dominate, if you, if you think about everything that he does, every decision he makes really can be uh, linked back to the fact that he knows he needs a surviving adult um, male heir. Um, and maybe two, because he himself had been a second son, his older brother had died. So that is his deep and abiding fear. My last question on Henry is, what do you believe is Henry VIII's legacy? Well, his legacy was obviously a fundamental change in the uh, religious climate of England. The the breaking the church um, away from Rome could be reversed, as Mary tried to do. But it had opened, you know, Pandora's box. It allowed people to think that there could be choice in religion. Um, and the dissolution of the monasteries, uh, 800 religious houses dissolved in four years, um, and the land sold off to the nobility and gentry could not be so easily undone. And that sort of thing, that made it very difficult to get back to any kind of medieval Catholicism. So that's the most fundamental thing. Then there's the, the build-up of the navy, which obviously is later crucially important to um, the British, later British Empire. Um, and uh, I think also, actually, um, there's something slightly less tangible, but there's the effect that Henry's court, if not Henry himself, had on culture, you know, people like Wyatt and Surrey writing poetry that would be the sort of foundation of what Shakespeare went on to do, or, um, uh, you know, creating an environment in which somebody like Hans Holbein could be a court painter and so that we could see these people from the past. I mean, I think that's one reason why the Tudor period sticks so much in our minds, because we know what these people look like. We had, uh, we have a genius like Holbein, painting these people and making them come to life. So in in large part, the legacy is also about not just what the king himself did, but the environment that he fostered. Thank goodness for Holbein. Those, his paintings, those sketches that were left behind, you're right, it really helps us feel like we can connect with those people a little better. That's right, that's right. It um, We are a visual people and we find it hard to engage with people when we don't know what they look like. <laughs> but for the Tudor court, we have a pretty good idea. Now we've reached the part of the show where I ask you the roughly the same five questions that I ask every guest, beginning with, if I could give you a time machine and you could safely travel to and return to any place in Tudor history, when would you choose? Mm-hmm. Um, gosh. So, I mean, I think I'd... I mean, I think it would have to be 1536 because so much happens then. I'm very tempted by the 1520s and be able to go and see the sort of um, n- everything that's going on around the world. But let's focus on England. I think uh, I think let's go with 1536. I'd like to, you know, I could meet Catherine of Aragon and Anne Boleyn and Jane Seymour. Um, <laughs> me, you know, there would, it would be incredible. And uh I could find out exactly what happened in the end with Anne Boleyn's fall <laughs> and um, uh, Cromwell. And, you know, they're just extraordinary. How amazing would that be to, to to meet all these people? Yeah, that's a good year to pick. I never thought of it that way with having the those three women being alive at that time. Yeah, I mean, I have to be quick because, you know, Catherine died. On the right, in January. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
So you've already answered the six wives question. So the next one I'm going to ask is, who do you feel was a better monarch, Henry VIII or Elizabeth I? It depends what we want them to achieve. Sorry, such a historian's answer. I mean, um, so from the point of view, I mean, they were both very difficult people to deal with in in various different ways. Perhaps Henry slightly had the edge in terms of being easy to deal with. Elizabeth was so indecisive, um, deliberately so, a lot of the time that her courtiers um, and councillors despaired. Um, in terms of what they achieve, again, it's about that environment that they foster, and both of them are sort of crucially important for the development of um, culture, um, and Elizabeth perhaps more so because of you know the great resounding weight that is Shakespeare. Um, which is a better monarch? I, I I genuinely don't know. I'm sorry. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not putting my money on either side. <laughs> I stumped you on that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I well, I it's just. I guess it's just this question of judging the past. It's quite hard to do that. You know, um, it involves. It depends where you. It says so much about where we are as opposed to them. You know, so it like you know, the nineteenth century person might be like, oh, Henry because he founded the navy, or um, Elizabeth because of Francis and and Drake. Um, Francis, sorry, Francis Drake and uh, Walter Raleigh. Like, it depends what you value. You know, and so uh, it to 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 judge the past really tells us more about the person judging it than than the period itself. What is something that listeners might be surprised to learn about you? Well, I'm a bit surprised that they know anything about me. So um, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, perhaps that I have a deep and abiding interest in India and Indian history. And I, I speak increasingly rusty Hindi. That probably would be a surprise. Wow, that's amazing. Well, it would be amazing if it were better. But yeah, <laughs> <laughs> everything takes time and practice. Yeah, that's right. What is the last thing that you read or what are you currently reading? Oh, I read about four books at once. So I'm reading Hilary Mantel's The Mirror and the Light. I'm reading um, a book about motherhood by Clover Stroud called My Wild and Sleepless Nights, um, which is fantastic. I'm reading Three Women um, by uh, Lisa Taddeo, which is about women and sex. So um, those are, you know, at the moment I'm reading all women, but I think before that I read a couple of novels that were by men asked by David Nichols, for example. Um, so yeah, I'm always reading a few things at a time. Well, now I'm curious because I tend to do the same thing as well, but all of mine um, are in the Tudor era and I try to read some nonfiction and some fiction. What does your pattern of reading? I'm just curious. What does your pattern of reading look like? Do you read a couple chapters and then switch or is it like a day to day type of thing? Um, yeah, I don't know. Like if, if I want, I persevere and finish, you know, so they, they're kind of always overlapping. Like I might read one, I might read, it totally changes. I might move between the two. I might finish one and then go back to another. Um, I re- I mean, because my job is history, I don't tend to read, um, many things about the 16th century for leisure because, that's my day job. So um, the mirror and the light is an exception um, to that. And and it is quite difficult because at the, 
during the day I'm I'm thinking about Henry VIII and I worry that at night and I'm reading about it that, you know, these things will stick in my head and I'll think they come from some primary source when they actually come from Hilary Mantel's imagination. So that's, that's the chief difficulty for me of reading historical fiction set in the period. Um, but yeah, just, a, you know, like leapfrogging. I'm always reading one and then the other. I don't know. <laughs> and lastly, where can my listeners find you and your books? Um, hopefully in all good bookshops. Um, so, uh, I, um, I'm online. I'm on Twitter, uh, at 16th C for century girl, which is, um, making me a hostage fortune as I get older and, uh, SuzanneLipscomb.com and, you know, the books about Henry VIII and all sorts of things, um, you could probably find, um, you know, on Amazon, on uh, from Barnes & Noble, from all manner of good independent bookshops as well. Susanna, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. And that concludes this episode of the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. You can find my show notes from this episode and how to become a patron at TudorsDynastyPodcast.com. Don't want to miss an episode? Be sure to subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Patreon, Podbean, or anywhere you can find podcasts. Intro and outro music called Folk Round by Kevin McLeod and Competech.com. Creative Commons license via filmmusic.io. Thanks for checking out the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. Read more. Read more on the blog at TudorsDynasty.com. Follow Tudor's Dynasty on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Subscribe to Tudor's Dynasty on iTunes. Thanks for listening.